Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Robert, what is the worst pain you have ever felt? Ooh, this is a good question. Um, oh, well, this is a tough one, you know, because I'm pretty lucky in that I haven't had any major injuries thus far, any major, majorly painful life experiences. Um, I guess the, what, the the one moment that comes to mind the most is when I had a, an, an ingrown toenail. Okay. This was years and years ago, and uh, I tried to address it myself. With some sort of, uh, which I do not advise anyone to do, <laughs> yeah. um, with some sort of bathroom uh, surgery. Oh yeah, and, I'm uh, imagining you with like a Bowie knife in the bathroom. <laughs> uh, basically, yeah, like tweezers and whatnot. And yeah. I should not have been doing this, but uh, there was a moment there where I, I almost blacked out. Oh um, wow! And you know, this is just a, a toenail, but I guess everything is just so um, you know tight in there. Oh and, yeah, and the, and the, the the nerve endings and all. But that that stands out is a moment of, of uh, rather intense pain. But it was just such a fleeting moment, too. There was no... Uh-huh. It was immediately back out of it. It's like, you know, flying and then dipping down into a canyon and then saying, ooh, that's a little bit too much, and then coming back out. See, the fact that it's your toenail is interesting to me because today's topic is connected to something I think about a lot when I watch action movies, which mm-hmm. is like, inevitably, somebody's getting tortured. And in the back of my head, I'm kind of like, how would I do in these scenarios? And I think... I could probably deal with a fingernail getting ripped out. But I don't know. When you say that, it makes me think, like, they're so tied in to your nervous system that it, that's just something I don't have any qualification of understanding for, you know? Well, it's the small pains we can certainly uh, understand a little little better, you know? Yeah. When we're watching a movie, if we have a character that gets their arm blown off, right? Like, most of us have no frame of reference for that sort of thing. But if the character breaks a finger or their fingernail rips or there's a uh, there's a moment in Raising Arizona where the, it is a, a fight between John Goodman's character and Nicolas Cage's character. And uh, one goes to do a double axe handle on the other. Yeah. And they scrape their knuckles across the, the, the ceiling of the uh, the popcorn ceiling of the trailer. Right. And like, that's a moment where we can feel it. Because, you cringe. Yeah, because yeah, we can relate. We maybe have not felt that exact sensation, but we we have a better idea of what that consists. Yeah, I'm like you in that I am lucky, knock on wood, that I have not had any, you know, I've never broken any bones to my knowledge. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've had major surgery once and I was pretty well under with anesthetic. But the worst I can think of, like when when somebody first asks me this, I always think of... Um, sometimes, so I have two different types of contact solution. One is just like your daily cleaning solution and is one, one is the overnight storage uh-huh. and it's got some kind of acidic thing in it hmm. that you're not supposed to put directly in your eye. And I maybe once a year make the mistake of accidentally putting it in my eye oh, man. and it burns so bad. It, it, it really hurts. But every time I do it, I start thinking like god this is this is super painful but it starts leaning into a point of not pleasure but just sort of meditative transcendence of like everything just evens out and the pain is still there but I but I'm just kind of I, it, it's flatline isn't the right word, uh-huh. but you know what I mean like it's just everything else all other senses sort of level out 
all of a sudden. And there's no longer like any kind of overstimulation. It's just the pain. And there's something kind of nice about that. Well, this reminds me a lot of, of doing yoga. And, yeah. um, and what I sometimes think about, like young, really, and really fit people who are doing yoga, I kind of want to say, look, if you... If you don't have injuries, if you don't have soreness, then you can't get... How much can you possibly be getting out of this? Because right. uh, f- for me, like sometimes it's working with uh, with a part of your body that's sore where you get into these, um, these sensations that are difficult to categorize. Like uh, a few years back, I had uh, some, uh, some wrist injury, minor wrist injury, but it made it difficult to like put a lot of direct pressure down. Yeah. But there were some poses where I'm like, where I'm bending my wrist in the other way and putting like subtle pressure there, and the resulting sensation was, it was difficult to categorize because it certainly it wasn't really pleasurable. Yeah. But it wasn't pain either. It was it was a very soothing. You know, sense of relief that I felt, and I, and it, and it was in somewhere in that gray area betwixt the two. I knew this woman once uh, who was she was in my yoga class, but she was also someday I knew outside of yoga, who was nine months pregnant, and she was like really good at yoga, mm-hmm. and she got into scorpion pose like oh, man. a week before she gave birth to her daughter, and mm-hmm. I was just. Like, at completely stunned. <laughs> like, like not only, like, what must that feel like? Because, you know, you're, you're carrying this extra weight. It's a completely different body dimension. But also just, like, the discipline that she must have in her yoga practice to be able to pull that off. Oh, man, yeah. Scorpion's a, a, a tough one. Super. I can't do scorpion. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> I've never been pregnant. <laughs> oh, and, and by the way, I don't, I don't mean to imply that young, fit people can't get something out of yoga. Everybody can get something out of yoga. But I'm just saying, if you have if you have an injury or a soreness, uh, depending on the the degree of the injury, uh, yoga can open up sort of new pathways of understanding what totally. your body's doing. Yeah. Well, hey, here's the thing: if you're young and fit and you're not getting anything out of yoga, maybe you should consider body suspension yoga. Yeah. Move on up <laughs> to the, uh, the, the 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 next level. That's what our topic is today. This is why we're talking about pain and pleasure at the top is that we've actually had, I think, multiple listeners write into us because we've just sort of brought it up casually in the past, Mm -hmm. the idea of body suspension. And we've had people send us photos uh, and write to us about their experiences with it. And we decided, you know what, let's take a, a deep look at like how this works. There's there is a lot of science behind it, a lot of math. Yeah, there's certainly physics and, uh, and and medicine that are involved in approaching it. And then in terms of understanding what's happening with pain and interpreting the sensations that are going on, there's, of course, a lot of research into just the human experience. Totally, yeah. Now, a number of you may remember from our listener mail episode, we heard from a listener by the name of Ainsley, and she wrote in and she shared her own experience with uh, with hook suspension. And she says, quote, I fell in love. I was allowed to feel and bleed and openly respect the process of each. It was a whole new world for me. Suspension became my life. And when I read those words, uh, it made me think back to a book that I, I read a while back titled The Body in Pain by Elaine Scarry. Okay. And it's a, this is a, one of these deep, um, deep considerations of the idea of pain, not only in terms of just physical experience, but what it means philosophically and politically, socially. Um, it is a it is a deep read, but uh, but one of the things that she talks about in this, like pretty much her main statement in the book, is that an individual's physical pain has no voice. 
But when it finds a voice, uh, it begins to tell a story, a story of um, of, of the, the vast distances between your experience of pain and my own. Uh, she even describes this distance as being interstellar. Like that's the that's the the space between my understanding of pain and another person's experience of pain. Yeah, this is a really good example of how. Hmm. Lonely humanity can be in a way mm-hmm. in that, like, there's no way for us to possibly understand what another person's level of pain is. Yeah. The, the, the limits or at least the challenges of, of human empathy. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on top of that, we have the, the complications that are inherent in that distance, our inability to, to understand each other's pains, and then the very nature of human creation. So she ties all of that up. Okay. And of course, authors and artists often cite pain as a necessary part of creation, some more than others. But, you know, it, make, it makes you think, you know, if we're, if we're pretty much okay with that idea that, that, that out of pain, out of personal suffering, we can create these, these great things, then how, how weird is it really for someone to engage in some careful manipulation of pain sensations? Yeah, I've, I've got to say, like, I, this is something, like, I'm constantly coming to terms with in real life, is that, like, things that I think of as being, like, not normal, but not being abnormal, mm-hmm. like body suspension, mm-hmm. I'm constantly surprised when other people around me are like, whoa, that's so weird, or what is wrong with you, or that kind of thing. Not that I've done body suspension, and I'm not particularly into body modification in any way, but I understand it. Like, I, I, I can identify with what people seem to be getting out of this experience. It's, I think, in a similar way, I'm glad you brought up yoga. Like, it's similar to what I've gotten out of yoga before, but it's also like, um, you and I have talked about sensory deprivation tanks on the show before. I can imagine that they're similar experiences. It's just that the pain part isn't there. Yeah, and, and it's certainly, not for for everyone to say the least. It's sure. very much an, an outsider enterprise, but but of course here's the thing. It's it's still something that emerges from the human experience and emerges in in at least a few different uh, human cultures. Yeah. So it's worth exploring. Like we can't just. It's it's easy to look at it, and especially if you look at say a media representation of it, be it you know Dateline tonight or whatever, or right. uh, or the cell. The cell is the go to. I mean the minute. Uh, anybody brings this up, I always think of Vincent D'Onofrio in mm-hmm. The Cell. And it's really, especially after doing the research, I think it's like a kind of horrible negative depiction of this process. Yeah. And, and, and probably, I would imagine people in this suspension community probably don't feel great about how they're portrayed in that movie. Yeah, because he's, he's a serial killer character in it. And <laughs> he's, you know, he's using it to sort of hurt himself while hurting others. And he only does it to himself by himself. Yeah, whereas in, as we're going to discuss, uh, actual hook suspensions tend to be more of a like a seemingly communal experience yeah. where there are the people facilitating the suspension and those observing it. And you see that not only in sort of the, the, the modern, primitive, industrial uh, you know, subculture of hook suspension, but in some of the traditional uses of hook suspension that we'll discuss as well from, uh, from Native American and, uh, and Indian uh, mm-hmm. traditions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this goes back a long ways, like 5,000 years. Mm-hmm. But still, it's difficult for, I think, most people to get past the idea that this is somebody that is intentionally suffering, intentionally doing harm to their body. Yeah. And it, it, 
and we just we we tend to just say, oh well, they just must be a complete wackadoodle, and you just put up this wall. I'm not get like I'm just, yeah. just like walls up, shields up. I'm not going to attempt to interact with that or empathize with that in any other form. Well, you know, like I, I guess because of like the people that I've spent time with, that. Things like other body modification practices like tattooing, piercing, even scarification or, or gauging, like, seem like totally normal things that, like, people in my everyday life have gone through. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, what is the line that is drawn where you go, like, well, uh, tattooing is totally normal and that's okay, but putting hooks through yourself and suspending is not, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know, like... I I see that there's different levels. Again, like there's variations in pain thresholds, too. But, mm, like, I I get it. You know, I'm not in any rush to go hook myself up and do it. (laughs) Um, But I I, I feel like I understand. Why don't we actually give the audience, like, a very basic definition of what we mean when we say body suspension. Okay. So this is a form of body modification that involves hanging the human body by hooks that are attached to ropes. So I think a lot of us have various ideas of what it means. We're going to go through it into deeper detail. Um, the other form of body modification that I, that I am unfamiliar with that we've talked about here at How Stuff Works before, I don't think we've done a show on it, is subdermal implantation. Uh, and that's something I'm also really interested in. We have a pretty good article with some excellent uh, infographics on mm-hmm. subdermal implantation on the site. Yeah, I may have done something, I, I think I've touched on it a little bit on the blogs before, uh, some forms of uh, subdermal implants. Um Notably, I think the bagel head thing. Which, oh, right. Which yeah, ultimately yeah. was not a very big thing at all. That's it was way blown saline, out. right? Yeah, where they put saline in the forehead and then sort of make an indention that looks yeah. kind of like a bagel. But it was, this was hard, it was hardly a trend. But it's kind of an interesting study in what happens when a few people do something that is kind of weird or rather weird. And then it gets blown out of proportion by the media. Right. It's not like uh, the people who give themselves like horns. Yeah. But you know, it, it's also worth noting, again, that you know what's normal within one community is is uh, yeah. not normal in another. And even the major um, supporters of suspension, such as uh, suspension artist uh, Alan Faulkner, uh, he points out, quote, hanging from hooks is hardly seen as a normal activity. Uh, that's from an, an article he wrote at safepiercing.org. So... You know, it's it's like any like really niche thing one may be into. You know, you, you admit that it's not the mainstream thing, and you really you don't want it to be the mainstream thing. Right. I haven't seen anybody that engages in uh, in hook suspension that's saying, "Hey, we really need to get this everybody in the YMCA's." Right. Of Amer- you know, of we should America. be doing this in public schools. Yeah. 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 Nobody's making that argument. Everyone yeah. is seems to be rather cool with the fact that this is a very specialist interest. But at one time, for some cultures, it was. I don't know. I don't want to say normal, but it was a part of their ritualistic behavior. Yeah. So let's take a look at the history of it for a minute, and we're going to start in North America. Actually, uh, I don't think we have records of how far back this practice goes in North America, but this is the Okipa hook suspension ceremony, right? And it's yeah. it's a l- much larger ceremony than just the hook suspension. Yeah, and and before we get into that, I do want to also point out that pain, of course, is a, a very normal, everyday aspect of human lives. And so you see uh, rituals of pain in just about every culture. Yeah. Uh, and then that includes Christian culture, Islamic culture, uh, Hindu culture. Pretty much anywhere you go, there's going to be some sort of 
rite of passage, some sort of uh, of, uh, of, of self-inflicting um, ritual that pops up at, at some point or another. Mm. Yeah, maybe we should do an episode on self-flagellation at some yeah, point. Yeah, that's, it's a fascinating topic unto itself. But here in, in North America, yeah, we had the uh, the Okipa hook suspension ceremony, and this was uh, practiced by the North what's now North Dakotan, uh, Mandan tribe. So it was a rite of passage, and the ceremony saw hook-suspended warriors twist and swing until they entered a transcendent state. And for you uh, film buffs out there, uh, the 1970 film starring Richard Harris, A Man Called Horse, depicted the rite in a rather memorable scene. I remember seeing the scene, or at least a trailer for it, on like TBS or something back okay. in the day, and it it really confused me. I had no idea what was going on. I thought, oh, they're torturing that guy. That's uh, horrible what they're doing to him. Yeah, but I, I had no idea. I've never seen this movie, but I am picturing older Richard Harris. I'm picturing like Dumbledore Richard Harris <laughs> uh, instead of you know. I imagine in the 70s he was probably. What like a man in his forties or something like that? He, was, I'm not sure what his age was, but he was definitely like leathery but still handsome. Oh, um, okay, Richard Harris. Yeah. <laughs> well, this particular ceremony, as I said, it's a four day ceremony, and suspension is just one part of it. They also have a long vigil. There's dancing, and then trials of endurance, of which the suspension is part of it. So the, what they would do is they suspend young warriors from the roof of the tribe's lodge by ropes that were attached to skewers in their chest, back or shoulders, and sometimes they would add weights as well that were attached to their legs to increase the pain. Now, here's the thing. In this culture, if you cried out in pain, you were considered cowardly. So uh, the ceremony itself didn't end until they were lowered, and then they had their left pinky finger removed with a hatchet, and then there was a run around the village with the skewers and weights all still in place. Uh, this was first documented by white men in 1835 by a guy named George Catlin, and he was a painter. Uh, apparently, I think he was just like visiting this community. He witnessed it and then brought it back. Uh, the last ceremony of this nature, well, the public, I think, that took place was in 1889. Yeah, and and in public again is a, is an or at least semi-public is the is an important thing to drive home because again these are communal. Experiences, right? It's not just somebody hanging alone in a tent. Uh, they are being suspended as part of this rite. And as we'll find out later, the modern suspension practice has its roots in the Okipa ceremony. Now, if we travel all the way around the world, we get to uh, Hinduism and at least two additional suspension rites. Uh, Probably more, I think, as we'll discuss. But uh, just to drive the nail into a couple of them here, there's <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's Sharak Puja. This is a, a Hindu folk festival in uh, southern Bangladesh, and here the the faithful believe that the festival will satisfy Lord Shiva and generate prosperity through the elimination of the previous year's sorrows and sufferings. You know, so there's a catharsis here. Mm-hmm. So sometimes a human Sharak, uh, as they're called, takes part in the festivities, tied with a hook on his back and then moved around a bar with a long rope. And then we have uh, Sri Lanka's Vel Hinduism Festival, named for the divine javelin Vel of the war god uh, Murugan, also known as uh, uh, Kartikeya. And uh, this entails public hook suspension as well. Uh, as with so many religious rites of pain, including those in Christianity and flagellation, uh, etc., uh, these traditions seem rooted in religious penance and the expression of devotion. Yeah, 
Yeah. So as I said earlier, this practice has been going on for 5,000 years. So if you look at body suspension today and you go, oh, weird, you know, you think about the larger human experience. This has been going on for a long time, far longer than many of us can imagine back to. Uh, There's also the Hindu festival of Thai Pusam that still happens in Southeast Asia. Uh, And one of our listeners actually wrote into us about this a year and a half ago, maybe for a, a listener mail episode, we talked about it and he sent us pictures of it. Um, he was living, I think he was an expatriate in Singapore. As many of our listeners know, I went to high school in Singapore and, uh, was totally unaware of this ceremony. So when he sent us the pictures, it was really interesting. And, uh, one of our colleagues, Ramsey and I coincidentally went to the same high school in Singapore and I was talking to him about this and he went several times with his family to the Thai Pusam festival. So he uh, was able to tell me a little bit more about this. Uh, I guess the basic idea here is similar to some of the ones that you just mentioned. Uh, it's a practice called Vel Kavadi, where mm-hmm. worshippers undergo what's sort of referred to as a debt bondage to Muragon, that same war god. Yeah, and Vel is the again the divine javelin. That, yeah. that's used as a weapon against uh, against the e against evil. Yeah. So these skewers are representative of the spear or javelin that Pavardi gave. Muragon to kill the demon Surapadam. Uh, and so what happens is actually during this festival, the worshippers are sometimes suspended in the air with the levels of pains correlating to their actual devotion. You know, um, And it's not, my understanding is it's not like what we think of as body suspension and that it's vertical. I think they're, they, I think from the pictures we were shown, it starts off on the ground and they're lifted up by, mm-hmm. by people horizontal to them. Yeah, I believe that sounds right. Yeah, those of you out there who have maybe uh, partaken in this and seen it, let us know. In, in looking at any of these religious or semi-religious modes of of hook suspension, it's, it uh, it reminds me again of, of Scary's writings, uh, where she talks about pain becoming a sort of proof, uh, an argument that the, quote, act of wounding is explicitly presented as a sign. The human body is in each the site for the uh, analogical verification of the existence and authority of God. And, of course, uh, modern suspension is often a secular affair rooted in uh, traditions of, of personal exploration and uh, performance art. But you, you still see some aspects of this, this idea that that the, the pain is there as a, as a proof of something, you know? Yeah. Why don't we take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to get into the modern suspension practices and how it's done. Okay, we're back. So one of the big sources that we used for this episode was a fantastic article written for The Atlantic called The Therapeutic Experience of Being Suspended by Your Skin. And this is by a guy named Wyatt Marshall. Yeah, this is a great article. We'll include a link to it on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. He goes through a lot of what we're going to be talking about here. And uh, he uh, points out that the modern suspension movement traces back to the 1960s when a man uh, by the name of uh, Fakir Musafar, 
who was born Roland Loomis, uh, reintroduced and adapted various forms of suspension and coined the term modern primitives. And in his wake, uh, suspension enthusiasts such as Musafar, Protégé, Alan Faulkner, who we already quoted, mm. uh, and performance artist uh, Steelark, who we've talked about on the show before, yep. they've continued uh, and others have continued to advance the culture and the public understanding of this these of these sort of rights. Yeah, so this isn't necessarily religious today, but people do see it as a spiritual experience or as a way to test themselves. Now, Fakir Musafar was born on an Indian reservation in South Dakota, and then he developed forms of modern suspension based on ukapa. Uh, he performed one of these in 1963. So, so for instance, you know, we read earlier that the last time this was was performed was in the like late 19th century. Uh, I don't think he did the full four-day ceremony. I think he just did the suspension part. And he saw it as being about self-expression or spiritual exploration. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, then Alan Faulkner goes on and sort of brings it out to the world at large. Mm -hmm. So Faulkner, actually, I read up on him. He's a laser technician from Dallas. Uh, and he has a tattoo removal shop. And so he met Musafar when he dropped out of school and moved to California. And he tried to do his first suspension with a fishing line, oh. and it ripped. So I think, like, you know, they eventually take on the practices, the knowledge of the Ukapa ceremony, which involves math and physics in one way or another, figuring out, you know, what... Uh, weight will bear on a particular pulley or rope, things like that. Yeah, and then of course, you know, where to connect them on the body, <laughs> how you're, uh, there are additional concerns that come into, in, into play as well. Yeah, I mean, if this isn't obvious, I think we should put a disclaimer out there, like, don't just go do this to yourself. Right. Like, you want to w- sit down with experts for a lot of reasons that we'll talk about, but you don't want to just put fishing line in your skin and hang yourself up from something. Uh, I'm also a little confused about Musafar's origin story. I could not for the life of me find more about him. It sounds like he was not Native American, but he was born on this reservation and learned about the practice and then appropriated it. So I'm kind of curious how these local tribes feel about modern body suspension culture. Hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. He, of course, is uh, is still alive as of this recording. Yeah. And there's all kinds of people that do suspension, too. That's another thing I think we should put out there to sort of dispel the idea that this is just like circus performers or something, right? Like Mm -hmm. lawyers, (laughs) wrestlers, doctors, (laughs) acrobats, and even politicians have done this. Now, I mentioned Steelark already, the the Australian performance artist. Yeah. Uh, And he's utilized suspension at several different points and and continues to do so uh, in his exploration of sort of the transhumanist body and the idea of uh, our body beyond our body via technology. Uh, And some practitioners also take hook suspension in a more industrial or even erotic direction. And I I think all this is quite understandable as well. After all, pain and pleasure are more closely linked than we typically realize. And modern hook suspension, you know, to think industrially, it's a union not of human and God, but of human and medical slash industrial paraphernalia. Yeah, and all of this is connected to previous episodes that Robert and I have done about cyborgism and uh, 
uh, we did an episode about body modification engineering as well, and steel art came up in there. Uh, I actually read an article for this episode that was all about steel arcs, just sort of general project and showed that he he really uses the suspension thing as a way to highlight his other experiments. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, when he put the ear on yeah, his arm. The ear. Like, the suspension was a way to get people to, like, sit and look at that ear for a long period of time rather than just, like, you know, sit around and do a photo shoot or something like that. And, of course, he's done some other interesting performance art bits with, uh, like, uh, mechanical arms, mechanical, mm-hmm. I want to say spider legs, uh, fascinating body of work. So there are different types of suspension positions too. That's one thing you should know if you're if you're thinking about this or you're interested in it. Hooks when they're inserted into the upper back, this is known as suicide suspension because it looks like you you've hanged yourself. There's also a pose called the Superman suspension, which is what it sounds like it it looks like you're hanging in the air as if you're flying mm-hmm. Superman style. Um, now Dallas, Texas has an annual body suspension convention called SUSCON that was founded in 2001, and this is because Alan Faulkner is from Dallas, there is apparently also one that's in Oslo. I was also running across pictures from one in Medellin, Colombia. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, And now Faulkner himself, and as we'll get into when we're sort of going through this, describes even a small suspension practice requires a crew of like two to six people. So again, don't buy the whole you know, if you've seen the cell, don't buy that like one person. I guess they could, but that's not usually how this is done. Like there, in fact, like doing it with a community of people seems to be part of the transcendent experience. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, it, it has to be witnessed to take place. Yeah. So let's get into the safety a little bit. Is it safe? Now, I, now I realize safe and safety. Uh, the, the, it might seem weird to talk about this in light of putting hooks in your back and hanging from from the ceiling. Uh, and, and, you know, we're talking about something that's intrinsically endorphin releasing. Uh, but safety is a prime concern for modern enthusiasts. Uh, after all, it's, it's one thing to, to pierce the skin and hang from specially prepared to hooks, uh, quite another to, to suffer tearing or a fall. Yeah. So the basic idea here, at least as it was portrayed by one of the, I guess, experts in this, in that Atlantic article, mm-hmm. was that there's two aspects for planning. There's, there's a medical aspect and there's a rigging aspect. Now, the medical aspect has to do with the insertion of the hooks, cleaning them, uh, the blood that comes out, cleaning up that blood, and then, of course, maintaining the skin. Rigging, uh, they use methods that are borrowed from construction, rock climbing, and stage rigs. Uh, for example, you need to know what a ceiling is made of before you rig something up and what's above that ceiling because you need to know how much stress is already being placed upon that single fracture point. <laughs> and also, to easily hoist a human body, you have to make use of the mechanical advantage that you get through pulley systems, right? So there's a certain amount of engineering that's required here. Uh, and like we said earlier, math and physics. Although the guy in that Atlantic article was like, yeah, I basically do all the math in my head. <laughs> that, that scared me a little. Now, in that article by uh, Wyatt Marshall, uh, he, he talks to a, a pair of physicians, and they testify to a, an important basic fact of human anatomy here, and one that I think comes up when, when any of us look at hook suspension, especially in light of, say, the Hellraiser movies yeah. or the Silent Hill movies, uh, you know, both of which I can think of moments where an individual skin, skin is cleanly ripped off in, like, the blinking of an eye. Right. And in reality, uh, outside of the Hellraiser and Silent Hill uh, universes, 
unless they're a shared universe. Oh, um, maybe they are. Uh, Some Hollywood executive just heard that and is like running to the bank. <laughs> well. In reality, our hides are incredibly durable. Uh, if skin tearing begins to occur, it's a gradual process and, quote, almost never the sort of dramatic freefall that someone watching a suspension for the first time might imagine. So it's infection, not accidental flaying, that poses the, the greatest health risk. And that's where the importance of sterilized hooks, needles, and gauze comes into play. And, of course, to your point on rigging, though, that, of course, is another huge area of concern. And... And uh, and generally, so much care is put into that that it's not going to be an issue. But obviously, if you're 30 feet, 50 feet off of the ground, off of a concrete floor, the potential for injury there is great if care is not taken in the rigging. Which you did read about an example of that. But for the most part, people don't just rip and free fall in these things. Mm -hmm. Uh, It may look like it's about to rip, but like Robert said, skin's pretty strong. Think of leather, you know, and, and all the products that we use leather in and the amount of tension that it can sustain. So there's an aspect of physics to where you place the hooks and how big the actual hooks are to this whole practice as much as there is with the rigging. Now, tearing is actually more likely on your knees and on your chest, but usually there is more than enough time to begin lowering a person if tearing starts to happen. Like, the, the... crew of people will start seeing it before it just rips yeah and they will say hey you know uh, it looks like you're starting to rip a little bit here do you want me to lower you or do you want to keep going uh now falls are usually due actually to improper insertion of hooks and any high degree of motion that happens when you're up there so it's not necessarily about the skin as much as it is about again the science the 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 physics of where things are placed and how you're moving many of the people who offer this service to they seem to be trained in medical emergencies and first aid care uh, a lot of the people that were interviewed for that atlantic piece were like nurses or uh, paramedics uh, and they will consult your doctor if you have a medical condition that you're concerned about before doing Doing this, like Robert said, infection is a huge risk as well. But also, nerve and tendon damage tend to be things that can happen if you have improper hook placement. So again, hook placement is huge on this. It's not like you just take a hook and just put it anywhere you please. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also read that while scarring, you know, inevitably is going to occur to some um, some level. It's not quite as bad as one might expe- expect, yeah. you know. Yeah, they were talking about um, one of the guys had a tattoo, and there was like a little bit of white flesh where the, where he had been scarred from doing it previously, but the writer said, I wouldn't have noticed mm-hmm. otherwise if he hadn't pointed it out to me. Uh, there's also something, and I could not find a lot more about this, called suspension shock syndrome, and this apparently happens if you hang vertically for too long. So I guess that's if you're in the suicide suspension pose. Um there's there's something related to that that I guess puts your body into shock. Okay, like blood flow. I think probably, yeah. yeah. Now, there's a there's another article out there that's pretty good. 2013 Guardian article titled Body Suspension: Why Would Anyone Hang from Hooks for Fun? Uh the the article's better than the headline on that one, but it uh, provides a, a an even-handed discussion of the health issues involved and health concerns and uh in the article emergency medical technician Scott DeBoer points out that uh hook suspension is not something that you have a lot of medical journal um, articles about you know it hasn't yeah. received that much serious attention in these circles, uh, so so we don't have like perfect data mm-hmm. on 
on how to handle all this. But he says that, again, experienced practitioners take an individual's health history you know, very seriously when considering uh, a suspension uh, event. I can see why it's not, right? Like, especially in the world of publisher parish, mm-hmm. if you're sending out articles to peer-reviewed journals, they might frown at something that's about body suspension. On the other hand, this seems like it has really big potential for just the broader human knowledge about, like, what our bodies can take and what they can't. Yeah. And just general, like, physics of lifting things. Plus, I'd totally read that journal article. Oh, man. On, yeah. If we had been able to access something like this for this episode, mm-hmm. I would have been thrilled. Yeah, yeah, so if anybody out there is researching uh, yeah. the, the physics or the, uh, the, the health issues uh, related to uh, hook suspension, let us know. We'd love to take a peek at that uh, research. All right, so that leaves us with the next and final question. What does an individual feel in a hook suspension? What's going on with pain and pleasure? Yeah, I'm so back to our previous examples, which many listeners are probably going, you you guys don't know pain. Pain, you don't know the meaning of the word. <laughs> you know, like uh, me putting the wrong saline in my eye and Robert taking out an ingrown toenail is probably nothing compared to this, right? But mm-hmm. at the same time, there's a purpose to this that in you know involves sort of Again, transcending, becoming something else. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will jump right into this area. All right, we're back. You know, I, I, what you just said prior to our break made me think of Hellraiser again because you kind of did a, a yeah. pinhead voice there. That was my, yeah, not not a very good pinhead. <laughs> but it, it does remind me that in the, especially in the first Hellraiser movie, and definitely in Clive Barker's original, The Hellbound Heart. Yeah. It's less about pain and more that these uh, the the cenobites are are you know since uh, I guess yeah and they have been just exploring uh, the limits of of human sensation in ways that go beyond pleasure or pain yeah and I always found that that the better read it becomes more about pain and just sort of uh, torturous demons as they just the turn into regret. monsters yeah. later on yeah but early on it's like the, the cenobites you can't really say they're evil because they're not. It's not like they want to hurt somebody. It's totally. just that their understanding of mortal sensation is so far beyond anything that a, a human could could understand. This is a brief aside, but I think a lot of people forget that about the original Hellraiser. Mm-hmm. That Pinhead and the Cenobites aren't really like the villains per se in that. They're, the villain is like, what's his name, Uncle Frank? The guy who, <laughs> yeah. who's like skinless and growing up in the attic. Like, you know, uh, that, that's a movie that actually has some really interesting themes because of Barker, uh, specifically about pain, pleasure, and just like the human experience, which I think is what makes it such a classic. Yeah, I mean, the Cenobites are essentially just a very inhuman bureaucratic organization. <laughs> right. yeah. It gets wound up in a, in a, in a, in a family dispute. Yeah, it gets bad when they start like uh, putting CD players inside their faces and stuff like that. Yeah, by, by the third Hellraiser, it's gone in an entirely different direction. All right, but but back to the real world of, of hook suspension. So it is, a, it is again, a consensual exercise. If we haven't been clear on that, let me just drive that home. No matter what you saw in the cell, uh, it's, and it's, it's, it's definitely a choice that one makes. Yeah. And it's far from an impulsive activity. So matters of health and physics are carefully calcula- calculated for the purely physical aspects of the event. But then on top of that, the participant is going to be weighing in on the inner complexities of the experience. So anticipation, priming, uh, 
it all accentuates the already complex interplay of nerve response and psychology. It's like anything. You're building up your anticipation for it. You have certain expectations yeah. that are going to be met or aren't going to be met, and also expectations and understandings of what's going to take place that are going to color your experience and then how you reflect on that experience. Yeah, and you can see how that played into ceremonial practices, right? There was build-up before the ceremony. There's the act of it itself. There's the communal aspect, and then there's sort of like the come-down of you're, you're lowered, and you're, you're still around your community, right? Like, you're mm-hmm. around, like, a supportive group of people. Um, and then the actual, like, hanging part, the feeling of shock that's involved in that, we got all kinds of chemicals involved there, right? There's endorphins, serotonin, etc. And those are obviously producing a sort of high, like we talked about. But again, I think the key to this seems to be about being part of a group. I, I don't know. I'd love to hear from people out there who have different experiences, but it seems to me like uh, I guess you could just like rig yourself up in a closet or something like that. It'd have to be a big closet, but uh, and you would get something out of it. But I don't think it would be the same as what you're getting when you're like you're working together with people. They're thinking about your well-being, and it's it's all about you sort of clearing your mind. Yeah, and uh, on the, the communal aspect here, it's also to keep in mind that this applies to not only the individual that's suspended, but those who are facilitating it and those who are observing it. Uh, this ties in with uh, uh, Emil uh, Durkheim's collective effervescence theory. And this is uh, the idea that a communal ritual generates a kind of shared electricity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes me think of, like, I mean... This is why I like going to yoga class mm-hmm. more than I like doing yoga at home. I do yoga at home, and I it feels good, and I'm able to kind of like work the kinks out. But when I go to class, it's a communal thing. Yeah. I'm out. I'm in public. I'm not a particularly like social person to begin with, so this is a good experience to get me out and like engaging with other people. I went to a really crowded yoga class uh, at a local um, ashram recently, uh-huh. and uh, and at first I was like, oh, I'm I got in way over my head. Here. This is way too crowded. I'm yeah. Just, packed in like sardines with everyone. But then it was, A, a good yoga class, and then, B, there was something about being there with so many people that we... It was a very communal experience. I felt like I was in that movie Society, where we're all just kind of like melting together. Yeah, I've had that, too. My local... um studio does classes on holidays, like on Thanksgiving and New Year's Day, and they're jam-packed when they do them on those holidays. So you're like... I think you've you've got like enough room for maybe like forty or fifty people in this room, and you're mm-hmm. just literally like knee to knee, like you know, full on doing like some pretty difficult poses. Although there's not a lot of inversions in a class like that, right? And of course, this kind of scenario applies to any kind of communal, secular or religious uh, event that's taking place. Yeah. That has a certain amount of ritual to it, but it's part of the human experience, just yeah. in general. You know, I mean, like uh, I would imagine that like. There is the same sort of just general good feeling that comes out of going to church on Sunday morning Mm -hmm. that you and I get out of going to a yoga class or somebody else gets out of body suspension. Yeah, and but you have this added level of physical exertion that is involved here, and uh, and this can actually play into one's connection to a group. Having having uh, completed a suspension, one may feel more connected with the group for having experienced a painful rite of passage. This is a process that was actually explored in in a 
1959 United States Army psychology study, not really with suspension, but just in pay, as far as pain and how it uh, uh, relates to your experience as being part of a group. Okay. Psychologist uh, Elliot uh, Aronson uh, of Stanford and Judson Mills, they used electric shocks and found that uh, individuals who received severe electric shocks before entering a group valued their membership more than those who received mild shocks. Huh. Interesting. So it's, it's almost kind of a hazing scenario. But uh, this is another but, like part of like they reminds me of like the classic Milgram study too. Mm-hmm. It's like that period of time. What Milgram was earlier than fifty nine though. I, think. I believe so. Yes. But you know that idea that like you could get away with something like that <laughs> back then. You know. All right. So let's come back to just pain itself for a little bit. Okay. Uh, now that we've talked about the the communal aspects here, obviously as as we've discussed, pain itself is kind of hard to to tack down. You know. Um, it's a it's a very distressing feeling that involves regions of the brain that are also associate, associated with the enjoyment of food, drugs, and sex. Right. So you have some shared pathways there for sure. And uh, and then what else is going on? Well, uh, let's look at a, a few a few uh, tidbits here. So a 2006 uh, University of Michigan study revealed that the brain's dopamine system is highly active while someone experiences pain, and that this response varies between individuals in a way that relates directly to how the pain makes them feel. Mm-hmm. And when uh, spiritual or secular ritual is involved, the ritual in and of itself can arouse the participant and trigger hormones that stimulate the reward systems of the brain. And this, according to anthropologist Dimitris uh, Zigalates uh, can cause sensations such as pain or fear to transform into pleasurable experiences through a dopamine spike. Okay. Uh, so an increase in the neuropeptides uh, that we call endorphins, uh, this uh, binds to the brain's opiate receptors, producing the same soothing euphoria that is uh, felt uh, to a certain extent by marathon runners during a runner's high. So this is basically the same thing. Well, I'm, I'm really generalizing here, but the same effect that we get when we take various kinds of drugs, whether they're legal or illegal, right? Like they're uh, influencing the amount of certain chemicals and proteins in our system that make us feel a certain way. There's something about this that seems better to me than just like popping a pill in that like again you're engaging in the human activity of uh, community yeah well I, I definitely agree that one of the things to keep in mind here is that someone who's engaging in hook suspension does not have a an alien biology or an alien psychology yeah it's, it's like they have the same their their body and their experience is the same mix of chemicals yeah uh, the, the same uh, bio machinery they're just interacting with it in a way that you are not. But they're not producing uh, feelings that are necessarily like, like that different than something you've experienced. Right, yeah. Which, God, man, the more we talk about this, the more the cell becomes ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, that movie was silly already, but mm-hmm. like when you think about it, the, like the, the premise where it's like, oh, somebody who's into this body suspension practice, of course they would be a serial killer. You know, like, uh, it's just, it's, Poor writing, Hollywood. Come on. Now, remember we talked about priming earlier. What's going on in your mind as you're preparing to uh, to go into this? What people are telling you and what you're expecting? Well, many descriptions of first-time hook suspensions, they, they speak to this anticipation of extreme sensation. And according to a 2013 study from the University of Oslo, pain that hits less severely than expected may give us a rush of release or even something like pleasure. Uh, on, on top of the endorphins. You know what this made me think of is just, and I think almost everybody can identify with this, going to the doctor and getting a shot or getting your blood drawn. Uh-huh. Like, 
for me, like I go and I just go, okay, like I anticipate that the pain is going to come. I prepare my mind for it. The needle is inserted. My blood is being drawn. And, uh, at, you know, after like two or three seconds, I don't, don't feel it anymore other than the blood draining out of my body, you know? Uh, that's, I think, like a, a, a relatable thing that most people can think of similar to body suspension, just on a much, like micro level. Indeed, yeah. And, uh, you know, on top of that, too, we, we talk about transcendence and sort of altered states with individuals that are uh, uh, undergoing a hook suspension. And there's a, there's an interesting study that lines up with that as well, a 2014 study from Northern Illinois University. And uh, they linked uh, various, uh, like, BDSM, S&M-type uh, activities to altered states of mind mm-hmm. in keeping with those achieved through yoga or meditation. So... Basically, what happened here was the researchers administered a cognitive test to S&M participants following a, a, a switching scene. And based on the findings, they suspect that uh, pain altered blood flow in the brain, particularly to the uh, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which plays into our ability to distinguish self from other. Yeah. So this, this is where you get into things that are like a little bit more dangerous, like cutting. Yeah, but but also it's where we can easily see some of the science behind the idea that someone could suspend from hooks, totally have, have this physical pain experience and lose some sense of themselves to have this, this experience of, of lifting, of flying above their worries and concerns and their anxieties and their baggage mm-hmm. and, and finding this place of release. And in fact, I found a quote from Alan Faulkner, who we've talked about here. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, quote, if life had a dial to adjust the volume, suspension has a way of accessing this invisible knob and turning it down. Yeah, again, like totally in line with my experience of both yoga and uh uh, sensory deprivation tanks. Like it's just, it takes for, for me, like I, I have a, pr- a particularly sensitive nervous system, right? Like mm-hmm. I take in a lot of sensory information, I think more than most people, but again, it's hard to tell when I do yoga or when I'm laying in the float tank or whatever, again, that's a perfect metaphor. Just turning the volume down, mm-hmm. just, it calms everything down. It's nice. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's basically what's going on with hook suspension here. So, obviously, we again, we are not saying go try this. Yeah. We, we are not. We're certainly saying not trying to tell you to go try it yourself on your own. But hopefully, what we've done here is we've been able to take something that is that is often seen as just this outsider weirdo thing, and putting it, uh, framing it in a way that lines up with. Uh, with, with more relatable modes of human experience. Yeah, so I would love to hear from you, the audience, if you have experience with this. Obviously, we've heard from a couple of you already, but uh, please tell us what we got right and maybe what we got wrong about this. Uh, also, let us know about your own experiences with it, or maybe you've witnessed one of these ceremonies that we talked about. Uh, it's it's a fascinating line of inquiry, and I, I'm curious to see where it goes next, especially, like we were mentioning, if academics actually get involved and start doing research studies on it indeed and you know if they get involved in ways that are not just simply uh, you know becoming cinnabites right <laughs> that too we had the was it dr clenard i believe in the second movie he's the oh yeah, yeah. british doctor yeah. who ends up uh, getting turned into this crazy cinnabite with a big worm attached this to this is true yeah i, I thought you, for a minute you were going to reference uh the monster science episode that you did on cinnabites oh yes yes we did do one on cinnabites it actually touches on some of the some of the, the pain related details that uh that we covered here this, so i'll this include is a link to that 
This is a good segue to uh, our website, StuffToBlowYourMind.com, where all of our videos are at along with all of our podcasts. So if you've never seen Monster Science before, you want to see this particular one, you're in for a treat, go look at it on StuffToBlowYourMind.com. There's also blog posts galore. In fact, Robert just posted a pretty lengthy, I wouldn't even call it a blog post. You did a full-on article about this topic on our site. Uh, we've also got links out to our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr and Instagram. Yeah, and I think there's a YouTube button on there too because we're doing this uh, Facebook series these days called Trailer Talk where we 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 spin off from these podcast episodes. We look at some movie trailers, talk about sometimes B a lot of times it's B movies yeah. or other horror sci-fi genre films and how they tie into the topics of the week. And uh, I'm not sure uh, there's I think there's a strong chance we'll have something tied in with these episodes. We'll see how it comes together. I think so a lot of movies came up yeah. in this episode so yeah i mean so i would expect this let's see if this episode publishes the week after recording it then a couple days later they're usually on fridays when Mm -hmm. we do these facebook lives and they then are both on our facebook page for watching and on youtube yeah you can find the archives on youtube for sure and if you want to get in touch with us the old-fashioned way we'll just send us an email at blow the mind at howstuffworks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>